Welcome to the South Coast Christian Podcast. I'm Pastor Tom Westerfield. On behalf of myself and our entire staff, we want to thank you for listening, and we hope this message uplifts and encourages you this week. Uh, I have this wonderful privilege. Uh, This happens once or twice a year where I get both my sons here at the same time. Of course, you get to enjoy Brett uh, here on a regular basis, and I'm so thankful for Brett and Danielle being a part of the church and Mr. Little Vince that's running around here. Um, But you get to meet my other son, Evan Westerfield, here today. And uh, I'm going to ask, Ashley's not going to like this, but that's okay. Ashley, I'm going to ask you and Evan to stand up because they got to see my newest grandson here, Joel. There's Joel right there. With his earphones ready, so he was, he sat through worship and everything today. And uh, Evan is at Marysville, uh, Washington, at the Grove Church, and he is the creative arts uh, director there, as well as uh, fills the pulpit on a regular basis there at the church. And I asked him to speak today and to continue in our series, Intentional, and he has a message that he's going to share with us on how we can be intentional in our lives so that we can continue to grow in Christ. And will you guys give my eldest son a great big warm welcome? Evan, come on up to the platform. Oh, hey. There's something tragic about when I hug my dad that the top of my head hits his chin, but <laughs> what are you going to do? You know, life, life isn't fair sometimes. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I love being able to come down here and visit with you guys. This one's kind of interesting because usually, Normally when I speak, it's on what we, what we in the biz called Youth Pastor Sunday, which is the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's. And the reason it's called that is because, you know, you get the youth pastor to speak because the lead pastor, you don't want to prep a message the week of Christmas. That's lame. Uh, and so normally I do that one, and it's uh, kind of a standalone, like whatever I'm thinking about. Usually what that means is like as the message I've preached through a year, kind of pick out whatever one I think would be the most meaningful and, and preach it. But this time around, it's cool because they get to actually continue in with the series that we have been doing. And it, it, I say we because it sounds kind of interesting, but this really is kind of my home away from home. And, and in a way, you guys are my church family away from my church family, if you will. So it's always really meaningful when I get to be down here and when I get to share what God has put on my heart. So today we're going to talk about the idea of being intentional friends or developing intentional friendships. I'm going to pray and then we can get started. Father, I just thank you so much for the gift that it is to be able to gather together as your people and to worship you the way that you deserve to be worshipped. I pray that today as I speak that there wouldn't be a hint of pride in my heart, but that you would use me to communicate your truth and your gospel. And I pray that you would prepare the hearts of everyone here to hear what you would have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. It's interesting that we're talking about the idea of friendship. A, f- a few weeks ago, I was having a conversation with some of my friends, and we were talking about how it's an interesting word, the word friend, and we kind of use it a little bit flippantly because it can mean a very close relationship. It can mean people that I do life with. It can mean close friends that I, I take things to, but it can also just mean basically anyone that I know and am friendly with. 
Like, there's a ton of people in my life who I've maybe talked to for a total of 15 minutes, but if you ask me about who is that, I would say, oh, that's my friend so-and-so. And so it, it, it can be kind of a very broad-meaning word, but I think we understand when we're talking about the idea of intentional friendship or what we can call biblical friendship, Christian friendship, when we're talking about that, we're not talking about just being necessarily friendly with everyone, although we should be. What we're talking about is the intentional relationships that we have with other people because we know that God did not create us to be alone. God did not create us to be isolated. No matter how, many, how, many, uh, how much some of us may try to do that, God created us to have relationships, whether that be spouses, whether that be uh, friends, and anything down the line. And so when I, when I want to talk about with friendship today is two basic kinds of friendships that we can have and, and talk about how in the Bible we see a few different examples of these. The first one would be peer-to-peer friendships. And these are the most common friendships by far. This is going to be the vast majority of the people that we call our friends are going to be in this peer-to-peer category. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's kind of just the natural way that we make friends. And a peer is someone who is probably close in age, not necessarily, but they usually are. It's someone who is going to probably share some of your similar interests. It's someone who is going to be in a similar season of life to you. And we make these friends all throughout our lives. Like when I was a kid, I was in second grade, let's say second or third grade. What were the things that I really enjoyed, right? Well, I really enjoyed video games. I enjoyed Star Wars, and I enjoyed Lord of the Rings. And so all my friends, when we were that age, what did we do? We watched Star Wars. We watched Lord of the Rings. We played games together, right? And as you get older, you, you know, tastes begin to change. You begin to develop friendships on a different, for different reasons, although most of my friends are still really into Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, so I don't know what that, what that says about me. But, some, you know, some things never change, I suppose, is the way that goes. But again, you, you share similar things. A lot of the friends that I have today, we met at church because we were serving together. We were doing something together. We have Christ in common. Uh, a lot of my friends are pastors because we get to kind of walk through the same things. We get to walk through the same difficulties. We get to encourage each other in that way. A lot of my friends, we're, we're all in a very similar season of life. Like I would, If you had to categorize where I'm at in life, it's young dad is probably the best way to say it. And so a lot of my friends are young dads, or they're, or they're people who are going into, like, you know, they're starting to try to have kids, or they have kids that are slightly older than Joel. And so it's, it's great because we get to encourage each other. We get to be in that similar season of life. And if I was thinking about a biblical example of what it means to be a friend, what it means to have a peer-to-peer relationship, I think the kind of, Joel, you're embarrassing me. Come on, keep it together. Just kidding. If, if I was thinking about an example of peer-to-peer relationships, growing up in Sunday school, there, it was kind of always the same relationship that was taught all the different levels. When we would talk about friendship, I kind of knew in the back of my head, oh, okay, we're going to be talking about David and Jonathan. But I think there's a reason that they are kind of the stereotype friendship in the Bible because it's one of the most beautiful pictures that we have of what it means to selflessly love someone as a friend and, and to sacrificially be an intentional friend. And I think one of the mistakes that we make when we read the Bible is we don't really take the time to put ourselves into the situations of the people that we're reading about. We don't take the time to really think about the context of what's happening or even the world as it existed. 
so to, to kind of paint the picture a little bit, when this story is going on, Saul is the king of Israel. His son, Jonathan, is the heir apparent. He's the eldest son of the king, so he would become king after Saul dies. And David has been anointed as the next king by the prophet Samuel. So already you can see how that would be really awkward because you as the king, you're expecting to pass this along to your son. You as the son are expecting to receive the crown. And then there's this shepherd boy who likes to play the harp who's been told that he's going to be the next king. And yet, David and Jonathan develop an incredibly close friendship in the midst of that. So much so that Jonathan will end up renouncing his birthright because in in terms of supporting David when he's doing that, he is knowingly saying that he is not going to be king of Israel, but rather his friend David will be instead. And, and, And he's selflessly laying down what that means for his life because he knows that God has called his friend to do that very thing. And we even see him rebel against his own father because Saul wants David killed. And when we read those passages in the Bible, we rightfully see this as a very evil and wicked thing that Saul is doing. But I think sometimes we don't think about how, while it's sinful, it was not abnormal. And if you open up a history book, if you read about all of the great kings of history, one of the first things that any king is going to do is he's going to take the throne and he's going to kill everyone who has a claim to the throne that's greater than his. He's going to solidify his claim to power. I'm not saying this is a good thing. What I'm saying is it's a normal thing. It was a normal thing that happened. And I'm not even talking about ancient times. Like you can look at medieval history when theoretically everyone was a Christian. And these Christian kings, what they would do is they would take the throne and they would kill everyone. And they would make up some excuse to keep the church happy. But they would kill everyone who had, who had any sort of claim on the throne. All throughout human history, when you have power, it was very normal to take care of anybody who was a threat to that power. And so when Jonathan stands against his father Saul, he's not just standing against sin, he's also standing against normal human behavior. And, and, and no, one, no one would have blamed Jonathan if he stood by and let his father kill David. No one would have blamed Jonathan if he killed David himself because, again, this was a very normal thing. The, the people that we call kings in the Bible, we would probably call warlords today. That's just kind of the way the world was. But that's not the way that Jonathan treated his friend David. And and I think we can kind of get at the heart of why Jonathan treats David this way, why David treats Jonathan this way. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, we see there's this scene where Jonathan has warned David that Saul is coming after him. And so they meet. And for what, they, for they, what they know is probably going to be the last time that they ever see each other. And they're saying goodbyes. And, and listen to what is said. It says this starting in verse 41. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace. Because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So what what Jonathan is saying there is he's recognizing that it's not just about the personal feelings that David and Jonathan have for each other. He's recognizing that we've made a vow before the Lord, and that's something that Jonathan takes incredibly seriously. And he says that the Lord is going to be between me and you. Or or in other words, as much as Jonathan loved David, Jonathan loved the Lord even more. And 
part of his friendship, part of this, the selflessness of the way he acts is because he recognizes the call of God that, that, the God that God had given to David, the call of God on David's life. And it, and it would have been very easy, and I think very normal, for Jonathan to be jealous of that. Because again, by, all, by political right, the throne of Israel should have gone to Jonathan. It would have been very natural for eventually them to kind of drift apart because Jonathan was jealous of the call that David had because Jonathan was jealous of what David got to do. But we don't see that. And it makes me think about, in my life, where do I allow sin, where do I allow greed, where do I allow jealousy to poison the friendships that, we, that I have? Because I think, I think we can all admit it's very easy to allow jealousy to sneak into our hearts when it comes to friendships. It's for, and it can be materialistic things, right? We can look at our friend's stuff and be jealous of the stuff that our friends have, whether that's a home or whether it's just like, you know, the gadgets that we get to have. It's very easy to be emotionally jealous of our friends. You know, we can say, oh, they have the perfect life. Like, looking from the outside, I wish mine was that way. Maybe you have similar careers, or even if you don't, but looking at the success that friends have when they're going off on different things and just wishing that we would have a bit of that. It's very easy to allow our hearts to slowly, and we don't even see that it's happening, but allow our hearts to be slowly poisoned one bit by one bit until eventually a friendship breaks apart and we have nothing to blame except for our own sinful nature. And luckily, that's not what happens with David and Jonathan. Um, but I, I, there's another biblical friendship that I want to bring up that I think really shows what this is. And it's the friendship between uh, three men and Job. And so if, if you go into the book of Job, there's Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They're kind of the three friends of Job. And, and, and most of us know, if we've ever heard anything on the book of Job, they're not the best friends. They're, they're not, they, don't, they do a really, really bad job of what they're trying to do. But what's interesting is I think we sometimes take a really simplistic look at the type of men that they were. I think sometimes the way that we, we preach about that story is that Job had incredible suffering come into his life, and then these three guys came, and all they did the entire time was just pick him apart and attack him until Job finally shut him down, and then God rebukes him, and that's the end. Um, and that's, you know, that's a very simplistic way to tell a story. It's not necessarily wrong. But what I think is really scary about the book of Job is in the midst of this really poetic telling and asking of philosophical questions. Like the book tackles the idea of why does God allow suffering to the righteous? What does it mean for God to be sovereign? For all these different questions that it asks, it, it plays out over the decay of this friendship. And, and they are true friends. Like take a look at how they are introduced when we first meet the characters. This is in Job chapter 2 starting in verse 11. It says, now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and to comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their clothes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word for him. Or no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. 
Like when you read that passage, it reads similarly to the David and Jonathan story. Like David and Jonathan, they meet each other, they know it's the end, and they weep together as friends. Job's friends, when they arrive and they see Job and they see the suffering that he's gone through, what do they do? They weep together with their friend. They mourn with their friend. And sometimes we can just ignore the sitting in seven days. Like imagine for a moment sitting in seven days, sitting for seven days with your friend in silence just to be there. Those are not the actions of evil men looking to tear down Job. Those are the actions of true friends trying to bring Job comfort. And that's what makes it scary. Because they're men with good intentions and they do wicked evil to their friend. And as we read through the book, we see it starts off somewhat polite and it gets eventually more and more vitriolic until the end. And the assumption that all three of the friends have is that Job has some sort of secret, unconfessed sin in his life. And that is why God is punishing him. And it doesn't matter how often Job tells them there is no secret sin that he has unconfessed. He, he has it all down before the Lord. It doesn't matter how much he says it. The friends refuse to believe anything else until eventually in one of the last speeches, Eliphaz, one of the friends, just straight up accuses Job of the sin that they all think that he's actually committed. And it's really interesting to me that the sin that they pick is taking advantage of the poor or stealing from widows and orphans. And, and I wonder, and, and I want to be clear, this is, this is conjecture. This is, the Bible's not clear on this. This is just kind of me reading between the lines. But, but I wonder if what is happening in that moment is we're seeing the tree that is sprouted from the small seeds of jealousy that began all the way from their be- the beginning of their friendship with Job. Because we know that Job is incredibly wealthy. We know that Job is the wealthiest man in his area. And I wonder if, as Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were with their friend, even even without them realizing it, if slowly the seeds of jealousy and the seeds of envy for Job and his perfect life and the amount of wealth he had, eventually those were planted until finally the moment came when all of that fell apart. And without necessarily even intending to, they realized they were all too happy to jump on and attack their friend because they had allowed the sin of jealousy to poison their hearts in that way. I I wonder if that is part of what is happening in that story. And it's it's hard because it's it's a picture of a friendship that is broken, probably beyond repair. We don't know exactly what happens between Job and his friends after the story. We know that Job uh, prays to God and asks for their forgiveness, and God forgives the friends. And so there, there's at least that beautiful moment of redemption. But I would say even, even if the friendship is repaired, it was never going to go back to the way that it was before. It, it's a reminder that we can let sin completely poison friendships and and break apart the gift of relationships that God gives to us. But I I also want to talk about the fact that friendships can be repaired. It's it's not like once they've been broken, there's nothing else that can be done. And one of the friendships that I want to talk about, we we don't talk about this one very often in church, which is always interesting, because it's one of those friendships that exists in the background. Like if you're watching a movie, it almost plays off, like it almost plays out in like with the extras. Like it's not necessarily in focus in any of the stories. But it's the friendship between Paul and Mark. And so Paul 
He is one of the, you know, he's one of the titans of the faith. He's an early Christian. Uh, he was a Jewish Pharisee, and when the resurrection happens, uh, Paul believes that Jesus is not who he says he is, and so he wants to persecute the church. He wants to tear down the church, and so he spends a few years doing that until eventually he meets Jesus in a miraculous way, and his life is forever changed. And he goes from being one of the most intense persecutors of the church to being perhaps the greatest missionary that the church has ever known. I mean, Paul goes, he takes a team, and he just plants churches. Like, he plants churches the way Johnny Appleseed planted apple trees. He just goes for it. Everywhere he goes, there's a church. And he plants a church, and he sets up a pastor, and then he moves on. That's kind of the way that Paul does it. And when you read through the book of Acts, which is kind of a retelling of the, the early, it's an early account of the early church. When you read through the book of Acts, Paul is most often working with a man named Barnabas. So Paul and Barnabas are kind of partners in this, and then they have teams of people that go with him. So it's not like it's just them two, but they're kind of the two main guys. And at some point, we're not told exactly how this happens. We're just told that Mark is with them, and then Mark leaves them in the middle of a journey, and he goes back to Jerusalem. We're not told exactly what the context of this is. I, I, I read recently that there's some speculation that Perhaps Mark is the one who went back to Jerusalem and kind of told on Paul. Because when Paul gets back from that journey, there's all of this massive debate about whether or not Paul is, is actually preaching the gospel because of the way that he's treating Gentiles. And so the church has to wrestle through that. So maybe that's what happened. Again, that's complete conjecture. We don't actually know. Um, but best case scenario, what happened is that Mark leaves and Paul is very angry about this. Mark leaves them in the middle of their journey, whether he was afraid, whether he was going to uh, Jerusalem again to, to kind of give an account of what was going on or whether he just lost interest. Something happened and Mark leaves. And after Paul and Barnabas return to Jerusalem and they get re-outfitted and they're getting ready to go out on their next journey, they have a massive argument because Barnabas wants to give Mark a second chance and Paul wants to wash his hands of him. Paul is done working with Mark. He doesn't want to anymore. And eventually, they argue about this so much, and they can't come to a conclusion, so one of the greatest missionary teams of all time splits apart. And Paul, or sorry, Barnabas takes Mark with him, and then Paul takes a man named Silas with him, and those become the new teams that are going to go around and plant churches. So this friendship had been fractured. But it's not, it's not fractured forever, and I think what's really interesting and again, you have, to read, you have to kind of read between the lines because it's never, there's never a scene where Mark and Paul hug and make up. But what you can see is that as you read the letters of Paul, eventually in the later letters, Paul begins to mention Mark again. And it's not like, oh, by the way, Mark, I hate that guy. Like, no, he's very nice about who Mark is. Until finally, we get to the book of 2 Timothy. And this is one of the last, if not the final letter that Paul writes. He writes it to his friend, Timothy. And it, it's full of just practical advice, almost from a father to a son, about what to do in, in the midst of the, the struggles that Timothy is encountering, and just final encouragement. And I think sometimes, just as a quick aside, we, we don't recognize what a gift some of the books of the Bible are. Like when we read through the letters of the New Testament, do we ever pause and think that we have two letters, James and Jude, that are written by the literal brothers of Christ? These are two men who went to the grave believing that Jesus is who he says he is, and we have letters confirming that. Or with Paul, we have all these letters to different churches talking about every single thing that you can possibly imagine that these churches went through. Um, things that would just make us blush if they happened in our church today. And Paul is writing to them about how to walk through all these things. And not only do we have those letters, not only do we have letters from Peter and from John, who are disciples that walk with Christ, we also have in, in 2 Timothy what amounts to the final words of Paul. 
We, we, we get a window into his soul in a way that a lot of the other letters don't give us because it's a personal letter to a friend. It's not a corporate letter meant to be read from the church. And Paul very clearly understands in this, in this letter that he's going to die soon. He, he makes multiple references to that. And as he's going through the letter, as he's giving Timothy his, his advice, as he's kind of encouraging him to stand strong in the faith, notice what he says at the end. And this is 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 9. And this is just kind of the personal instructions of Paul. He says, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. For he is very useful to me for ministry. And so here we see Paul at the end of his life feeling deserted by many of the people who were with him. Some for evil reasons like the man Demas. We don't know with Titus and uh, I, I'm not going to try and say the other guy's name again. But with those guys, we don't know if it was a wicked thing that they left Paul or if they were on their own mission, mission journeys. But either way, Paul is alone. He has Luke with him. And so who does he want? He's asking his dear friend Timothy to come and visit him one last time. And who does he ask Timothy to bring with him? He asks him to bring Mark. And here, all of these decades later, after their first split, Mark is one of the people that Paul wants to see at the very end. And, and, we, and we can see in this moment that the friendship that they have had been repaired. It, it, it's a reminder that as we live intentional friendship, as we make intentional friendships, as we live out what it means to be a biblical Christian friend, it's a reminder that we must be ready to forgive. And it, it's, it's not an accident that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Or we forgive those who are indebted to us. Because if we truly believed what we say we believe, of course that would change the way that we treat other people. And I, and I think that's a trap that we can fall into all too often as Christians. It's we, we, we know what we believe, right? Like we say that we believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and that he lived the perfect, sinless life that we could never live, that he died the death that we deserve to die, and that because of his death and resurrection, we can now have a relationship with him. We find our forgiveness in him. We find our purpose in him. We can say those things over and over and over again, but, but do we actually believe that they're true? Because if we truly believe that and internalize that truth that we're saved not because of what we've done but because of what Jesus has accomplished if we truly believed that we were dead in sin without hope and God made a way then of course we would be ready to forgive whenever someone sins against us because, because how, how wicked would it be to receive the grace of God and then let it stop and, and not pass it along to other people especially our friends, especially the people who are incredibly close with us. And Mark sinned against Paul, regardless of what happened. We, and we, like I said, we don't know the exact details, uh, but Mark fails. And yet, at some point in their relationship, it's mended, and it's, it's made all the better because we, we get from Mark, we get the gospel of Mark. That's who writes it. And, and I, I wonder what would have happened if both Paul and Barnabas just cut Mark off completely and never wanted to take him on a missionary journey again, I wonder if we would only have three Gospels today. It's, it's, it's interesting to consider just the, the butterfly effect of what would have happened 
if in that first moment Barnabas wasn't ready to forgive and if later on Paul wasn't ready to repair the friendship and forgive as well. And the, I mentioned at the top that there was two types of friendships I want to talk about. The, the second one is very simply, if, if there's peer-to-peer friendships, and these are people who are in the same season of life to you, I think the other type of friendship that's incredibly important is, is what I would call mentor friendships. And that's what Paul and Timothy were. Like when we, when we read the letters of Paul and Timothy, I said that it, it sounds very much like a father giving advice to his son because in a way, that's what it was. Paul is very much a spiritual father to Timothy. Uh, they're not in similar seasons of life at all. Paul is an older man. Timothy is a young man. If you read through 1 Timothy especially, like a lot of the encouragement is about how, hey, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Like go do what God has called you to do. When you read the letters, it's a lot of practical advice about how do, you, how do you deal with people in the church who are questioning what God has told you? How do you deal with people who are just being difficult? It, it, it reads very much like as a pastor today, you can read those things and sometimes you nod your head and you're like, oh yeah, been there, been there, Timothy. <laughs> but it's a beautiful thing. And, and, and the question for us today is how often do we seek out friendships with people who have been through what we've been through or what we're going through? And so, I, like I said, if, if you wanted to call my season of life young dad, it's kind of like a broad term. Most of my friends are in that same season. Um, but I also have friends who are older and have been through other things. Like one of my close friends is another pastor on staff where I work. And he's, if I've been married five years, him and his wife have been married for like 13, 14 years. They have kids who are in more of like the young middle school, late elementary age range is kind of where they're at. And so it's been really helpful to kind of been able to take some of the things that I'm, that I'm walking through and, and bring them to him. Like I remember when I first got got back from, from paternity leave, and I was just completely gassed out of my mind and super tired. He just looks at me, and he's like, ah, dad fog, been there. You know, and, but in, in a way, it's funny, but like, it's just an encouraging little thing from someone who has already been through that season of life who was able to encourage me there. Um, I have friends who are much older. I have friends who have uh, kids who have completely grown and out of the house. Like, I have a dear friend. He, he moved away, which is a bummer. Um, but I, I remember just wanting to learn how he intentionally loved people the way that he did. And, and his life was just fascinating because he was a drug addict for many years, and he hurt people in really painful ways. But through that pain, he be, later on in life, he became one of the most incredibly intentional lovers is a really weird way to say it, but I can't think of another word right now. But the way he loved people was just inspirational. And it's because he walked through pain. And I was able to learn from him, okay, like how, how do I love people the way that you love people? And a lot of that is because you get to learn from the mistakes that older people have made and they get to warn you about what's coming up. And if we're wise, we'll listen to those things. <laughs> but it, it, also, it also goes way, it go both ways. It's not just about I'm Timothy and I'm looking for a Paul. It should also be about us looking for Timothys, looking for people who are younger and who, are, who we can help along the way as well. And if you're, if you're anything like me, you probably feel a little bit underqualified to do that. And so let me just, like, put your mind at ease. Like, you don't have to be Socrates, like, just sitting while everyone else is, like, at your feet and just spouting off wisdom and everyone's in tears because of how wise you are. Like, no, you're just telling them mistakes that you've made along the way. 
I, I remember one of the, the or not one of, the first time I did premarital, I felt like a little bit of a fraud because I had been married for like three years. And so it's like, who am I to tell this person how to set the foundation for a long and healthy marriage? Because I haven't done that. I'm working on doing that. I'm in the midst of doing that. But it's not like I've been married 50 years. It's not like, and, and all the other pastors have been married a long time. Uh, until eventually it clicked with me. What I was doing was not saying, here's how to live with your spouse for 30 years. What I'm doing is saying, hey, Here's some things that I walked through in the first year of my marriage. Here's some conversations you probably want to have. Here's some things to think about. And all of a sudden, it made it very easy to do that. Because I realized, oh, I can do that. I, I can talk with someone about what, like, the first year of marriage looks like. That's easy. And, and, and for us today, it's, it's a reminder that we can talk through those different seasons of life with people. We can encourage people. Uh, in my role at the church, I'm dealing with a lot of young adults who are in that kind of college age. And so it's been a little bit for me now. It's been like, man, over 10 years now. But I, I can still remember back to what it was like to make that transition from high school into college. I can remember back to some of the difficulties of that season of life. Um, I can remember, like, there's just the angst that you go through in that season. And I can walk through them with it. And I can have conversations. I can just take them out to lunch. I can do those different things. Again, it's not pretending that... I'm the wisest person ever and that you just need to do everything the way that I did it, but you can give practical advice on just the things that you've gone through. So do, do we build intentional friendships not just with people who are in the same season of life that we are, but do we look for friendships of people who are older and do we look for friendships with people who are younger? Because again, if we believe that the Holy Spirit is constantly pouring into our lives, if we believe that the Holy Spirit is constantly ministering in our lives, of course we would want to constantly be ministering to others as well. We, we would want to be building up friendships. We would want to be encouraging younger people. We would want to be looking to older people and encouraging older people too. It's not like it's just a one-way street. There's ways that we can do that as well. It's a reminder that when we talk about what it means to be a friend, it, it's not just about being friendly with everyone, which is, of course, important. Like, God would call us to be a light everywhere that we go. But it's also a reminder to build intentional friendships with the people that we meet. To build intentional relationships and to think through the lens of, if God has done this for me, how can I do this for others? If God shows me mercy, how can I show mercy to others? If God shows me love, how can I show love to others? And I pray that that's what God would encourage us all with today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the gift of your word. For the gift of your friendship, as you say multiple times through the Bible, that we are your friends. And I pray that today that you would show us ways in which we can intentionally love others well. I pray that you would show us relationships that we can heal. I pray that you would guard our hearts against poisoning the friendships that we have. And Father, I pray above all that your truth, that your salvation would always be real to us, that it's not something, that it wouldn't be something that we take for granted, but that as we believe it, that we would look to pass along your grace and your truth and your mercy to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the South Coast Christian Podcast. We appreciate those who give on a regular basis to South Coast because through your giving, we are able to provide these resources. For more information about South Coast, including service times and ways to give, please visit southcoastchristian.com. 
And if you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast. Thanks again, and may this week be filled with new opportunities where you can receive and share God's love.